Well, good morning again. It's my privilege to get to open the Word with us as we wrap up chapter 1 of uh, Gospel of Mark in this series we started a couple weeks back calling the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we're going to begin with a question. It's an important question because there's a lot of voices in our life competing for attention and are prying for our, uh, um, or vying, I guess is the word, for our attention and allegiance. It's this, whose voice will you hear? Whose voice will you hear? And I ask that in a way for us to think about not only whose voice will you hear, but whose voice are you following in your life? You know, we live in a culture of sound bites, you know that, and of social media, where there is a glut of voices, isn't there? Just a glut of voices, all vying for an authoritative hearing with you and I, whether it's flipping the cable news or uh, opening uh, your phone and swiping through Facebook. Um, or opening up a newspaper. There's all these authoritative voices. And so the question is, who do we listen to? With all those voices, where does authority come from in your life as you think about that? Because everybody has some, a voice they follow, an authority they listen to, or multiple. Where does authority come from? Well, today we look to the Gospel of Mark to answer this question. As we head back into the first chapter of Mark's member, immediate Uh, and punchy gospel account of the person and work of Jesus. It's immediate. And Jesus' message is immediate. But unless it contains authority, it really isn't much of a message, is it? Unless it contains authority, why would I place myself under it? Why would you, as a voice to listen to? Why should I just listen to one more voice? Why, Why should I, why should you, Listen to Jesus Christ. And why should He be the ultimate authority in your life? So the question is, which voice will you hear this morning? The voice of God or a voice of our own making which can't contradict and even challenge us? We've got a lot of voices that we can listen to. Well, Mark doesn't allow us to do that this morning, to create our own voice and a voice that will never contradict us, a voice that will never challenge us. Those are the voices I like to listen to, don't you? The ones that never challenge, the ones that never contradict. But if he's God, uh, he gets to speak into all areas of our life. So Mark this morning doesn't allow us to do that. As we look at the authority of Jesus, we're going to look at four points, each with a follow-up question this morning. So four points, each with a follow-up question this morning. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. we got some fill-ins on it for you. It's got life group questions on the back. And have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. As we're going to see the first point this morning about his authority is, His authority of word. The authority of Jesus' word that I want us to see, that Mark wants us to see this morning. The setting quickly shifts in this, uh, uh, here in the scene in in Mark chapter 1, quickly shifts to a synagogue in this town in Capernaum, which is as unknown in uh, this time. to the Old Testament even as Nazareth was. Not really a well-known area as it relates to the Old Testament and God's working, but an unlikely setting for Jesus to work in. It's unlikely. Here comes Jesus with a new teaching, with a new authority to Capernaum. Kind of interesting. We've got this dynamic outbreak here we're going to see this morning of a demon-possessed man, which in some ways is connected to Jesus' teaching. They were amazed at Jesus' teaching. They were shocked at what He said in His Word. But what did He say? You know, Mark doesn't, as Lauren was reading, Mark doesn't really give us that in the passage. 
uh, what Jesus was saying that they were so amazed at. Uh, I mean, he does give it to us in kernel form in Mark 1.15 that you see. The time is fulfilled. It was right before this, Jesus was saying. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn from self and sin and believe in the good news of the gospel. So we get that. He was teaching them the gospel. We know that. The good news. So he was interpreting Scripture and teaching in the synagogue probably this message as he unpacked the Scriptures. But they were used to people teaching. And that was just part of their culture. Synagogue life, people would teach and you would listen and they were used to that. And and on the Sabbath even, nonetheless, that's what you would expect. They were used to that. But something here is happening unexpected. Unexpected. What do they say in verse 22? Look at the text there. They were amazed at His teaching. And they debated among themselves, what is this? What is Jesus saying? A new authority. A new teaching with authority. A new kingdom authority is breaking in. You know, all throughout Mark's Gospel, we get responses just like this. All throughout His Gospel, they were... uh, amazed they marvel they're terrified they're afraid absolute amazement at jesus teaching this always this always happens at jesus's words throughout mark's gospel and we're going to keep seeing that as we go on and on now we the reader know from remember chapter 1 verse 10 a while back jesus's authority comes from god himself remember the spirit descended upon him Uh, At his baptism, and the father spoke approvingly, and he commissioned his son, my beloved son, who I'm well pleased. But they didn't know this yet. Possibly those there sitting there didn't know that, or maybe weren't there when the baptism took place. We've got this. And yet they were still amazed. But here they see something. Imagine standing there. Imagine standing there, and you hear this man speak, and you're absolutely amazed by what he's saying. But as we said, Mark doesn't give us the teaching. And here's why. Because Mark's very point is, the very point he wants to make is to tell us to look at their response. That's what he wants us to see here. Not necessarily what he's teaching. He wants us to see their response to his teaching. Their response to Jesus. Not at the teaching itself. You know, as we said, the Jewish audience was used to listening to teachers. They were used to it, to listening to someone with authority, the scribes they were called. They used to talk about God. They would talk about God from the Scriptures. They were studied, they'd study the Scriptures, and then therefore they had an earned an audience and an authority, and they would talk from the Scriptures about God. That's not what's going on here, though. That's not what's happening in this synagogue couple thousand years ago as they said verse 22 he spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes so something different's happening here the scribes their teachers spoke about god but what's happening here the people are saying he speaks for god something different is happening here he's not just talking about god opening our scriptures he's he's speaking for God. He's not just an interpreter of Scripture, but one with a power that amazes. And we're going to see in a moment a word that even overpowers the demonic. They're amazed. 
This isn't just like some of one of their teachers that knows the Word and opens it and talks about God. He's speaking in a unique way. Here's an authority, they're saying. One that speaks of this new kingdom that's come. This peaceful kingdom. Breaking in to time and space. Something's happening. Something big is happening here. They were amazed. Listen to His words. Hear His commands. Watch Him command the demon. He's making things new. Something new is happening. I think, I think it's safe to say, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's safe to say spring's arrived this week. Is that safe? Yeah, I see some kind of not quite sure. I love it. <laughs> see kind of, yeah. Well, it feels like it, doesn't it? I mean, it's a beautiful week. I love this quote by uh, the, the old writer Thoreau as he was talking about spring and winter when he was out at Walden from that book. Listen to his words about spring. One attraction in coming to the woods, I mean, he went out to the woods and lived on his own and wrote about it. One attraction in coming to the woods to live was that I should have the leisure and opportunity to see the spring come in. We're seeing that this week. The ice in the pond at length begins to be honeycombed, and I can set my heel in it as I walk. Fogs and rains and warmer suns are gradually melting the snow. The days have grown sensibly longer, and I see how I shall get through the winter without adding to my woodpile. For large fires are no longer necessary. I'm on alert for the first signs of spring. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Sounds like this week. I heard amen to that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. With Jesus Christ, the arrival of Jesus Christ, winter was ending. Spring was coming. The first signs of spring had come. And that's why they're amazed. Something radical was happening. And they could see that. Spring was coming. The Son of God. And He was breaking winter apart. He was thawing out the ice on hearts. He was shattering the, the grip hold, the vice hold of winter. Spring had come. Wood piles wouldn't be needed anymore. He taught with authority. Spoke for God. And the implications of this new kind of authority was going to be a healing, a mending, a reweaving. Every single thing that's broken It's new. Spring had come. Well, even physical afflictions we're going to see here in this passage today. Even physical things and the spiritual, he was remending and, and reweaving. You know something? Unlike other world religions, unlike other world religions, Christianity is really the only one that also lifts up the physical world, that also values the material world, embraces the material as good, something good that God made, yes, tainted by sin, but good. And redeemable as Jesus here begins to mend and fix even the material world. Other world religions might say, you know, the physical world is just going to burn up. It's going to be gone. Or it's going to be turned into some uh, ethereal kind of spiritual world. But Jesus is saying, come, repent, and believe, and the physical world is going to be redeemed too. The physical he comes with this new authority and teaching and says that I'm coming to save the spiritual and the physical. Both and. I'm coming to bring you a more perfect world. 
a better place, a home that you so desperately need and maybe you don't even realize you need yet. That's what was happening here. That's what Jesus was bringing. This new authority and teaching and healing and point us to the perfect world to come. You know what that means? The physical matters too. It means that the here and now matters. And what we do with our bodies matters. If he's the God of the physical and he came to die for the physical too and the spiritual, it means what we do with our physical stuff, body included, matters. The physical world matters. Well, a new authority's broken in. He's begun to put everything right. And that is hopeful even too for our broken bodies. Our broken mind. Our broken souls. All will be made right someday. And they were amazed. The kingdom has come. The question then is, does the teaching of Jesus amaze me today? Does He amaze you today? As you think about what the ramification of Christ, the second person of the, tr- of the Trinity, coming to earth in flesh, is He the authority in your life that amazes you? So many voices to listen to in our world, but do you hear this one? Here's what He said in John 10. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The followers of Jesus know His voice. A follower of Jesus wants to hear His voice, Jesus says. A follower of Jesus is amazed. So the question, are you sitting under that authoritative voice today? Do the words of Jesus shape you, or do you shape His words? It's a good question for all of us. Are you allowing Him to speak into every area of your life? Not just kind of the little ones you want to sort of give him. No, every area. Are you hearing that voice? Well, that's our first point. The authority of his word, his voice, his teaching, what he did when he came. The second one is this. His authority of deed. His authority of deed. Do you know, on a number of occasions, uh, a, a number, a few, I guess, a handful, I, I've been teaching in settings like this, and I've had someone come all the way to the front to interrupt. A few times. Uh, it's a little unsettling, to say the least. <laughs> but nothing like what we see happen in the text here today has ever happened to me. It's unsettling, but this is otherworldly almost. What we see happen next to Jesus while He's teaching. A man breaks up the service is what happens. A man breaks up the service in the synagogue. In verse 23, immediately it says, of course that word is all over this, this book, immediately it says, a man with an unclean spirit, a demon, cries out. A man for whom another authority had taken over his life. There's all that authority in this passage today. Another authority had taken over his life. And this other power, this demonic recognizes the authority of Jesus and that this was a battle for survival in that moment for this demon. Life and death, I guess you could say. A battle for survival was on the line right here, right now. And the demon says in verse 24, what do you want with us? 
What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you going to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. And you catch what happened there. The demon sees. The demon knows. The kingdom is breaking in. Authority is here. Spring is coming. Are you going to destroy us? What's going to happen? Jesus, what, what are you going to do? Did you catch that there? The demon even gives him an earthly root. Jesus of Nazareth, he says but a heavenly status, the Holy One of God. Even the demon sees it and knows. And Jesus move, moves towards this man, forward to him. You know what Jesus really says to him in a word, to the demon? Shut up. <laughs> That's kind of what he says, basically. He says to the demon, shut up is what he says to the demon, come out. And immediately the picture there is, is something, you know, really... I think it happens in the world, but something probably the experience we might have is on the level of something in a movie. Convulsions and a loud scream and a loud voice happen and the Spirit comes out of him. Can you imagine seeing that? You're in the, the synagogue there in your worship service, comfortable in your seat. And this takes place in front of you. They would have been shocked too. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. These things just didn't happen all over the place even in Bible times. They do happen when the Son of God shows up. Well, immediately this happens, the convulsions and the spirit comes out. Some spirit has taken authority of this human being and it's distorted his human life by twisting, by maiming him so that he's really, he's like a shadow of himself, a vapor of himself. But really, that's what all sin does to us. All sin does that. When we bow to any other authority in our life, any other authority than Jesus, we become a shadow of what God really wants us to be. We become a vapor. We become a distorted mess. It's a picture pointing us to the reality of a fallen world. And what sin does to you and I as individuals, we see in the man happening in the spiritual realm with this demonic interaction. And he needed divine authority and intervention. But so do we. So do you and I in our sinful state. What other than the breaking in of God into your life pulled you out and showed you your need of a Savior? And so Jesus does it. He says, come out of him. He's like, shut up. Come out of him. Get out. Mark shows us that Jesus is fighting a battle a struggle to the death against the powers of, of evil, really, in every sphere, sphere. His authority of deed ensures that victory. I love what one commentator said. He said, when the holy and the unclean meet, we'll see it on the slide coming up, when the holy and the unclean meet, there is no contest. No contest. And the Spirit comes out. So why does Jesus tell the Spirit to be quiet? Why does He do that? He does that multiple places in the, in the Gospels. He tells a Spirit or a person, don't talk about this. Why does He tell the, 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 the Spirit to be quiet? Why doesn't He just get the free press? You know, Let Him go and spread and share. Hey, the kingdom's here. Shout it out, demon. Hey, let, it, let all your buddies know. You know. The disciples try to do this in verse 37. They say, Jesus, they're all looking for You. They're all looking for you. Look, come on, let's go. I would have been like, you know, 
bring it, come on, let's go, come get some, let's go, chest bumping the disciples, like, let's go. But not Jesus. He tells them to be quiet. He says, be quiet in verse 26. And what happened? Look at verse 20, one, uh, 126. We're going to compare it with a Mark 15. He says, And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Do you know, in Mark 15, 37, the death of Jesus, it says he, he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's almost the exact same words. It's almost the exact same words from Mark 1 to Mark 15. Jesus understood that his road was a road to the cross. It was a road to the cross. And so along the way, just to make sure that they didn't realize that, hey, the kingdom is now, or set him up as a king now, he silenced the voices. Because he knew his road was to the, the cross. Not to earthly immediate fame. Not to an earthly kingdom. And that to ultimately now, to ultimately silence those demons, he'd have to silence himself at the cross. That's why. And to ultimately defeat the demons and Satan, he would have to be defeated himself. That's why he says from time to time, you know what, let's not share about this. I've got a greater purpose here. I'm headed to the cross. Here's paraphrasing how one pastor put it. These are border skirmishes, what we're seeing here with the demon, in preparation for the greater battle when he would utterly destroy all these four dying, uh, by dying for us. This is like a border skirmish along the way to the cross. That's why Jesus says, hold on a second. This isn't the greatest thing. This isn't the real reason I came. Here's what happens. Jesus Christ becomes the shadow. Jesus Christ becomes the vapor who would breathe his spirit out so then he could later on breathe it into you. That's what we see here. Well, Jesus moves on his authority of deed as he comes to Peter's house in verse 29 from this, this uh, interaction with the demon in the synagogue. On now to Peter's, uh, Peter's house in verse 29. We don't know what happens to the man in the synagogue, really, other than he does go on and, and share. But we do know what happens to Peter's mother after the healing. What happens? She begins to serve. Look at verse 31 with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand, Peter's uh, mother-in-law, and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve. Look what Jesus does. He hears she has a fever, and he approaches her. He moves towards her, and the verse says, he lifted her up. Jesus always moves towards. He moves towards the hurting, towards the disease. Rather than run, he moves towards them. Just like the demon-oppressed man, now Peter's mom, and soon the leper. And the verse literally says, he resurrected her. He lifted her up. He, he, he resurrected her. Even though he, she was deathly ill, he raises her up, and the fever left, and then she served them. All over the book of Mark, when, when, when someone is healed, it basically says that Jesus resurrected them. 
resurrection language. When this new authority comes, an authority of word, an authority of deed over darkness and Satan and and healing and disease, do you know what it does? It frees. It, It resurrects. It brings... He brings freedom. It frees the captive to serve. That's what we see happening here. When you have an authoritative encounter with Jesus, it gives you a taste of the spring to come. What's ahead in life? And you want to be part of bringing that spring, bringing that warmth of life, of hope, of peace, of healing and forgiveness that only Jesus offers to the lives of others. That's what's happening here with Peter's mother-in-law. And so you move towards them and she begins to serve, we see. She moves towards Jesus and towards them as Jesus did her. You touch them. You, you love them. That's what Jesus is doing. And she gets a little foretaste as the fever instantly leaves her body. She gets a foretaste Oh, you can almost taste it of the spring to come. She knows. She looks at this man. You healed me. I'm well. She's got a little foretaste of spring to come. And she serves. And so it raises our second question. Here it is. Has the teaching of Jesus, His authority, has it freed me, has it freed you to serve people where they're hurting and diseased? It does that when you get a taste of the grace of God and the mercy of God and you realize He may not have healed me of fever, but He's healed me of sin and He's cleansing me. It frees us to serve and move towards those as we've gotten a taste of spring. His authority of word, His authority of deed, and now His authority to retreat. What does that mean? His authority to retreat so the crowds they flood the house can you blame them can you blame them i mean you heard there was a man like jesus in town a healer that could heal not only spiritual but physical wouldn't you flock there the whole city verse 33 comes to the door the whole city comes to the door probably wasn't very big might call it a town Uh, and, and he heals them He tells the demons to be quiet again. And then early in the morning, he flees to a secluded place, verse 35 says. The parallel passage in Luke says he goes out to a a lonely place, Luke calls it. A lonely place Jesus goes to. Secluded place, Mark says. Why does Jesus keep covering? Why does he keep hiding? Retreating. We did say Jesus understood his road was to the cross, not earthly immediate fame. He's basically keeping them, telling them to uh, keep it on the DL is the phrase, right? Keep it on the down low. We know that. He, he, it's not immediate. He's not setting up an earthly throne. But Jesus also wants his followers to follow because they see their need for him on a larger level than just the physical. He wants them to see that. He wants them to see they need him not only physical, but they need him spiritual as well. So Mark shows us here that Jesus retreats. But he also shows us not just that, because he wants to see the spiritual, not just the physical need, but there's an interesting thing here that Jesus does when he retreats. What does he do? 
He prays. And so Mark wants to show us the importance of prayer in Jesus' life. Here he is, having this amazing success. You would have called him by any standard, uh, an uh, overwhelmingly successful leader. The crowds are flocking. Whole towns are coming out to him. He's gaining a, fo- a following. It's amazing people. They're astounded. When things are going great in my life, what do I do? I forget about God. When I'm having success, I don't see my need for God. You had that? Have you had that? You feel distant. You're like, things are just going great. You're like, you just, you kind of lose track. I got this. We're doing chest bumping, right? I'm okay. You don't see your need. You don't see your need. Things look to be amazingly successful. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the lonely place and says, Father, Father. He retreats to pray. Verse 37, they come back. Come on, Jesus. Hey, everybody's looking for you. you get back here. You know, Whip up the crowds. Get them going. Do some of those neat tricks you're kind of doing. Get, they seem to love that. Come on, Jesus. Let's go. Finish it off. And he's out there by himself praying. He's out there in the lonely place, Luke calls it, praying. And if you and I are flawed people and He's the Son of God and needs prayer, how much more do we need it? How much more do you and I need to be coming to God in prayer? You know, one commentator said His action and authority, they were going to change the world what Jesus was going to do. And He still thinks prayer is just as important or actually more important. He's going to change the world. And he's still dependent on God in prayer. So it brings our third question. Do I see, do you see the priority of prayer in your life? As Christ did. As he shows us in Mark. That prayer is so important, even when, maybe when things are going well, even more important. But it's also about the Father. Because that's what Jesus showed us, didn't he? He shows us the model too. He's always orienting himself. He's always turning his life. He's always going back, pointing himself up to the Father. Up to the Father. Why is that? You know, when my children hurt, I hurt. When your children hurt, don't you hurt? Or your grandkids hurt, it hurts you, doesn't it? It stings. It's painful to watch. Or any child you love that's in your life. When your children hurt, we, we hurt. When my daughter, a couple of my kids a few months ago were sick and, you know, sick. <laughs> it killed me to watch that. I hate that. But when I see them laugh, it melts my heart. Absolutely melts my heart. And if I, as a messed up, sinful parent, can feel that way about my child, how much more does God, the perfect lover, care about you? If I, as a messed up, sinful parent, can have that melted heart, how does the perfect one who made you, the perfect father, how much more is he committed to you? So much more. That's why Jesus told the demons to be quiet. That's why he retreated from the crowds. That's what he's doing for you and us. He doesn't want us to follow Him just to get the stuff. He wants us to follow Him just to get Him. Just to get Him. And we see that through prayer of Jesus, the priority of getting Him, of reorienting ourselves towards God in prayer. 
the priority of knowing the Father as Jesus did. Do you see that this morning? And if you don't, how can you? It's our final fourth point. You can see it this morning and have it this morning in His authority to exchange. By looking this morning to Jesus Christ's authority to exchange. It means to switch something, to swap something, to trade it out, exchange, take it back, get something in return. Jesus knows that you and I, we need a comprehensive, that's all-encompassing salvation. Comprehensive saving. That's why Jesus says here, I- I've got to get going. I- I've got to go into the next town. I've got, to, I've got to come and preach. That's why I came, he says. I mean, there's crowds. He could have spent all day there healing. He says, I've got to go. I've I got to go preach this kingdom message. That's why I came. Even though the parallel Luke passage says the people, they wanted to keep him there. No, stay. Stay in this town. Stay here. Don't leave. Heal all our illnesses, they said. He doesn't. He goes on. They wanted him to stay because that's the only need they saw. And it was real, and it was painful, but that's the only need they saw. They didn't see their need to repent. They didn't see the truer and deeper spiritual need. And that's the case time and time again in Jesus' life. They follow him for the physical stuff, which is understandable because we'd be right there. But repent? Because I'm a sinner? I don't know, Jesus. We kind of like the flashy stuff. The water to wine. The walking on the water. The loaves was really good, Jesus. But repent and believe. It was word and deed for Jesus, and so it must be for us as we love others with word and deed, as Jesus did. But then he goes on right away, and doesn't he? And he heals a leper. He heals again. See, but the leper gives us, as we close on this this morning, the leper gives us the perfect example. And this is what leprosy is in the Bible. Gives us the the perfect example of the comprehensive now need that we have. The all-encompassing exchange that we make with Jesus. Here's one Garland, a, a commentator, said on this passage. He said, in the time of Jesus, leprosy was viewed as a classic punishment for sin. You had leprosy? It was punishment for your sin. You must have done something, and something probably bad. While sin may be hidden from the community, he goes on, it would not be hidden from God. So what happens? It shows up on your skin, your sin. And it served as a forewarning of the ultimate fate of the sinner. It was horrific. To get leprosy in Bible times was like a death sentence. It was absolutely horrible. And the belief was that only God could heal leprosy because it was so all-encompassing and because it was so connected to sin in their mind. Leprosy was a total condition. Now, here's how. Well, he was an outcast socially, the first thing. He had to stay and go out into lonely places, didn't he? He had to leave the camp. He had to go. He had to get out of there. He was sick and it could spread. Socially, he was, he was outcast. That's important to remember. He had to go out in the desert and live without any physical touch. Or the person touching would be considered unclean, if you remember the Bible. Unclean. So, social outcast if you're a leper. That's the first one. 
but physical too. His body was falling apart. Leprosy is an infectious disease that starts with sores of your skin that goes into nerve damage and I think death of the tissue as well. His body was falling apart. So social, outside the, camp, the community and the camp. Physical, but also spiritual. If you're kicked out of town, you can't go to the temple. You can't go to the synagogue. He was excluded also spiritually from the community of worship. He couldn't go to temple. He couldn't go to the synagogue. So he's got all three of these. Social, physical, spiritual, all because of this disease. But here he comes. And he falls on his knees in front of Jesus. And he says in verse 40, If you will, make me clean. If you will, make me clean. He's risking everything, this leper. He sprints out probably for Jesus. He lunges out probably, risking persecution and maybe even death by coming back in to town. You're not supposed to be here. Get out of here. And yet he races in for Jesus and he says, make me clean. Not well, but make me clean. Mark pointing us to the fact that he sees his need of entire healing, both body and soul. Not just make me well, make me clean. If you will, make me clean. He's saying, I trust you. And if you will, it it will be done, Jesus. If you see fit, Jesus is basically what he's saying. He runs in. He comes with no conditions. If you will, Jesus. And he puts himself in the service of this authority. Have you done that? You come to Jesus like this. Not just for physical healing, but for complete cleansing as he saw. Make me clean. And what does a compassionate Jesus do? Touches him. Touches him. He didn't need to touch him, but he did. As God in flesh, he could have just said with his words, be healed. But what does he do? touches him to show compassion he touches him to show he loved him he touches him to show that yes you do need to be cleaned entirely in all dimensions leper and so do we but he also touches him to show us this judaism was all about staying clean all about staying uh clean to touch the unclean would make you what or unclean It'd make you unclean. And Jesus touches him and says, well, you leper, you have to go back to the priests and you have to let them declare you clean and be uh, reassimilated, be given permission to enter back in. You, you have to go do this, leper, but Jesus doesn't have to do that. He doesn't need that. He's saying to the leper, he's saying to us, I am cleanliness itself. That's what he's saying. You come to me. No matter how filthy you are, no matter how dirty, no matter how sinful, and I, if I touch you, you're clean. You're forgiven. That's what we see happening with this leper. How can he do that? How can he do that? The text tells us how he can do that. They change places. Jesus and the leper change places. The great exchange. They change 
places his authority to exchange. He tells the leper, don't tell anyone. There he is again. Don't tell anyone. But he completely ignores Jesus. And what does he do? Goes and tells everyone so that Jesus now has to leave. Jesus is the one that has to leave and go out to lonely places again. You see that Jesus can't even, the text says, he can't even enter the city now. But what's the leper get to do? He gets to go back in and, and, and celebrate and live and come back in. It's the great exchange. And Jesus is the one now who's got to go out to the lonely places, Luke says. You know, Jesus was crucified outside the city for you and I outside the place of warmth, outside the place of love, outside the place of community, outside of the temple and synagogue. Jesus was crucified outside the city for you and I so we could be brought in. That's the great exchange. He exchanged places with the leper. He exchanged places with us on the cross. Hebrews says this, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate outside the city in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. It's the great exchange. There it is. He goes out so we can be brought in. He loses the Father so you can get Him. He becomes the shadow and vapor so you can have the Spirit. It's the great exchange. So have you, the final question today, have you changed your illness? Have I exchanged my illness for Jesus' cleanliness? Because that's what the leper's showing us. That's what we need. It's a great exchange through repentance and faith. So which voice will you hear today? Will you live for Him now? What if He asks you to go outside the camp for Him, as Hebrews verse said? Move towards the outcast. Which voice will you hear tonight? Which voice will you hear tomorrow? Which voice will you hear on that day when you arrive at the judgment seat? Will it be the voice of the shepherd you recognize? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or a strange voice you're only hearing for the first time that says, depart from me, I never knew you. Contemplate it today. Think about that authoritative voice. See Mark lay him out for us today. He is the true shepherd. He's calling you to run to him without conditions like that leopard and throw yourself down and say, cleanse me if you will. It's the good news. And it's found in his authority to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we want to respond as we come to sermons week after week. I want so badly. We want our hearts to rise in worship. I mean, that's what we want to do in real time. We want to see Jesus as more beautiful. Jesus as all-sufficient. Jesus as authoritative. That's why we preach. That's why we listen. That's why we come to the Word to be changed and transformed and to grow here in real time. And so, Lord, we want to respond today to You and Your authority. Help us repent because we all know we have places that we just are stubborn. We just want to hold on to. We just don't want to give to You, Jesus, as authoritative Lord in our lives. Let us have the humble humility of a leper. Let us be like that who would run and risk and sprint towards You to find hope and forgiveness and healing, Lord. And by the power of Your Spirit, we ask You give us the ability to do that, God. Transform us and let us be people that speak for that name and that authoritative voice that saves. 
And that's Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.